Hi. Welcome to episode 22 of Trade Secrets. Um, we are excited today to welcome Matt Virgin, Senior Vice President at SunCap. Uh, so thanks for joining us today, thanks Matt. Thanks for having Thank me. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. We are excited to talk industrial real estate development. It's been the, um, the prom queen for the last couple of years. And uh, we'll get into that because obviously that's what SunCap's bread butter is. But um, the topic du jour for... Uh, what's going on in the world today is our wonderful city of Pittsburgh and <laughs> the mayor's office in January deciding to um, increase the zoning review fees by 20x or 2,000%. Is it the zoning review fees? Zoning review the, fees. That's just it, zoning review. Yeah. And just to frame it before I let you chime in since you do work all over the country, um, the project in question, the zoning review fee is $285,000. The exact same review fee in Columbus would be $565. In Atlanta, $1,700. Raleigh, $2,200. Philly, $2,600. I mean, think about that. It is $280,000 more in Pittsburgh than in Philadelphia for the exact same permit. Nash, I'm sorry for zoning review. Nashville, eighty-five hundred. Charlotte, thirteen thousand. Portland, fifty thousand. And then on the actual permit fees for that exact same project in Pittsburgh, it'd be six hundred and sixty-five thousand. And the next closest is Raleigh at three hundred and twenty-three thousand. But I'm sorry, in Portland, three hundred twenty-three thousand. Columbus permit fifty thousand for the same project. So lots of data there, but. You know, your experience doing work all over the country and then thinking about your hometown, Pittsburgh, and this being on the front page of the paper on Monday. Yeah, look, it's um, it's a situation that, you know, for, for us and the kind of development we do, um, being in the city is probably not somewhere where we would have developed anyway. It's not going right. to keep SunCap from doing things in sure. one place or another. Um, but to be that out of line with, with the rest of the market, similarly sized cities, uh, cities actually, they're all experiencing a, a much higher level of development than Pittsburgh is and being much more cost effective. Um, and the timing of it is just um, very, very difficult. You've got interest rates that have doubled since last year, and this is just one more piece of the capital stack that's now kind of out the window. Right. So. Um, I feel the developers in pain, especially the ones who are midstream or getting ready to submit or were getting ready to submit right before it was instituted and have, hadn't, hadn't calculated in their overall budgets yet. Um, but I, I think if, if, if we want to continue to be competitive as a region, the city has to be competitive. And um, well, in, in this situation, it makes it uncompetitive and it would give you enough information to do something completely different choose another place to build exactly that's a stupid thing exactly when, when you're looking at places to invest it also sends a message too right um yeah the opposite of the one that uh the office of the the uh the lieutenant governor gave right two weeks ago like don't you wish this article had come out prior to that event <laughs> yeah I mean, so we open for business in what way for the city to make money off of the people who want to do business here? I love Cayman. Not Cayman. a great look. Right. Cayman says, you know, you, you can't do this. It's illegal, et cetera. And the city's pushback was that they needed to fund the review process. And just this permit alone is enough to cover the salaries of all the people in the review department. 
Well, and that's the other thing. I mean, the, the article that we're talking about, it says that the law currently states that any fees collected have to be directly associated with um, the permitting, like investigating the rezoning. It can't be used as like a revenue center. Right. But if they want to use those funds to make the process better and more efficient, seems like the process needs to get better and more efficient before they can legally... <laughs> charge those fees. Right. Otherwise, we, they're trying to fund a process that hasn't happened yet. Okay, so when they say this, you say zoning review. This is site plan review. Is that... No, zoning review. So I think in situations like in the Walnut Capital one, they're uh, asking for variances to a okay, zoning that's, situation. Right, so it's, yep. a, it's a submission for a, a change or a clarification of the Correct. zoning. It's not... But I thought it was licensing and permitting as well. Yeah, the permitting is also out of whack. That was the second set yeah, of numbers, right? Okay. But I guess, you know, leave it to Pittsburgh to, in this study, be the 39th out of 40 most expensive place to do business in the country. But um, Who's number 40? Do we know? I, it doesn't say. It, there? it doesn't say. <laughs> um, but we just want to know that one city that we're beating here on, on these fees. And but, <laughs> <laughs> Send them a card. With some yeah, that's right. All I right. mean, it, it really, it's kind of fascinating. And it's almost like. I don't even know what to say because you just can't do anything other than shake your head. Well, I'm well, I think that, as you said, if you're midstream, if the boat's in the water right now, it's you got to deal with it. But it will prevent other people from being here and saying, "Okay, I'm I'm going to a different jurisdiction. I'm doing something different." Because it, it just sends this message that we don't want your business. We don't want you to do this. We're making it harder for you, and that's just the first review. Never mind all the subsequent ones that are coming. I do think it's fascinating that NAOP and Brendan Mendoza um, choreographed, I think it was nine different development companies, went into the mayor's office last week. Um, developers are usually really good at um, arguing for their own causes. It's very rare where they're all on the same page. Yeah, we're, we're a difficult group to unite. You know, <laughs> right. There's no, there's no question about it, especially when we're competing with one another. And, and if you look at the list of the folks who were there, these are kind of bellwether, long-term city of Pittsburgh development companies. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, these are groups that uh, have developed a lot of projects that have added significantly to the tax base and have broader economic impacts. You know, um, guys like Walnut and some of the other groups that are out there have uh, delivered the space that is necessary to underpin our local economy with the types of companies that we constantly say that we want more of. Right. Um, and it's, uh, I, I, I understand why they feel a bit snubbed. Yeah. It's, it's, it's self-harm. I mean, it's completely counterintuitive to what their best interests are. I, I, don't, I don't understand it. I don't understand the reason why you would even consider it and how it got to the point that they decided this is the number. Yeah, and I have, a, I have a question, Matt, to that end. So there was mention also that there, you know, the mayor's office put their foot down and said, you know, we're not overturning that, but we're open to a discussion of maybe assessing that fee at a later period in the process. Does that have, I mean, it still hits the bottom, you know, it still impacts the yield of the project, right? Or, or does well, that make a difference when it happens? Well, well, look, it's just it's just another piece of the project that then becomes unknown. As a developer, what you're trying to do through, through from from the day you have an idea until the day you actually deliver a project is eliminate variables. And to have one hanging out there much longer than it has to be um, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Look, I think everybody probably would have grumbled 
about some kind of incremental increase, right. even if it incrementally increased for the next two, three, four years. Right. Um, but you wouldn't have had kind of the backlash that's out there now. I, th I think that developers would have embraced paying a higher fee if it meant to streamline the process. But not a 20x. Not, right. not to, that, 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 that's just... For a process that's already super yeah, slow. Yeah, it's, it's, it's such a non-starter. And also, I think, too, if the process, if there were visible, tangible changes or improvements made to the process before trying to implement a higher fee, then, yeah, a lot of people would probably would be willing to, you know, more willing to pay more if they've seen improvements. But it's still, you don't want to pay that much more for brain damage you know you're going to incur when no other... No proof of concept, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think it's just, and, and it's almost even more frustrating. Like I was very optimistic about this mayor and this administration because they did seem to always have like an open door policy and seem to be listening but the fact that then you can get all of these developers in and like s supposedly listen to their concerns the people who are underpinning all of the business develop you know all of the growth in this area and then turn around and take a hard line and say no we're not changing it that's almost more frustrating than if you just didn't open don't the door. take the right. meeting and listen to all their concerns it is a bad look. The meeting probably shouldn't happen. It's, yeah. it's, it's a horrible look. And what about the companies that would be coming in here and saying, all right, we're, I'm considering Pittsburgh as a place I want to locate my company. And then they see this, they hear about it's impossible to deliver product here when they can go anywhere else in the world, and it just makes it that much yeah, easier. Well, even It's so much that. less He's competitive. Well, and don't even think about it. I mean, <laughs> it, and we're going to switch gears here in a second to the, the guest of the day. But um, the mayor wants affordable housing development in the city of Pittsburgh. How in the world do you say with a straight face, we want affordable housing development? But oh, by the way, I just made it. I just made it near impossible yeah. to start a project. Mm -hmm. um, so, Matt, you talked about development being the game of eliminating variables. Um, sure. And I thought that was a good segue into, like, can you give us, our team, and, you know, the fools out there who are listening to us on this, um, uh, just a kind of an overview of who is SunCap, what does SunCap do, what's your, you know, a day in the life of Matt at a, at a pretty neat company look like? Yeah, no, I appreciate you having me on. Um, SunCap Property Group is primarily an industrial development company. Um, we've been in business since 2009, so we're still relatively young, particularly when you look at the field here locally. Um, we're actually headquartered in Charlotte, North Carolina. We have offices here, Denver, and in Charleston, South Carolina as well. Um, we have about eight people that sit here in Pittsburgh on a permanent basis, and we have two or three visitors from Charlotte on a weekly basis, much to their chagrin. Um, <laughs> sure. We're flying them up here because... Uh, because we're busy. We have a lot of projects that are going on in the Northeast right now, and um, that's the team that manages uh, the construction of the projects along with uh, a couple of delivery guys here that we have in Pittsburgh. Okay. Um, I'm responsible for all of the development in the Northeast, uh, particularly Pennsylvania, kind of Ohio uh, to New York, um, and I'm also responsible for several clients on a national basis. So how many states are you guys actively under construction in today? Sure. We're actively developing right now in eight different states. How many different sites? Um, right now we have 16 projects in a, some stage of development. Uh, those aren't all under construction, but they're either in for permitting, set to close, 
um, or we've closed and are waiting to start construction for one reason or another. Um, and I think that uh, uh, if you look around the country, we've developed in about 200 different cities and municipalities. Okay. Um, we cut our teeth as a preferred developer for one client, and they took us around the country very, very quickly and very, very early uh, in the growth of the company. And uh, it really put us in a position where uh, we modeled our growth to be able to go ahead and parachute in, jump in any market, um, and we felt confident that we could deliver a project there. Um, because I'm here, right. I'm much more fond of driving to my projects in the, <laughs> in the morning um, and, and, and leaving those meetings in the morning than I am hopping on a plane. Um, and jumping around the country. Uh, but that is a significant part of our business, and uh, it will continue to be. Build-a-suit-side will continue to be a significant portion of our business. Uh, and is it 100% build-a-suit? It's not. So um, right now we're about 70% build-a-suit. Okay. Uh, I expect us to stay in that range uh, for the near term as it kind of goes up and down with the economy and demand. Um, but I expect that to be a good number for us to, uh, to be at that's durable. And what's there? Go ahead. I was going to say. So, is it safe to assume the other thirty percent you're doing on spec? That's right. We're uh, we've done speculative projects uh, around the country, six or seven projects in the West. We've got three or four active in the South right now, and we have um, actually we have a couple that you know, we'll be announcing here in Pittsburgh over the next uh, three to six months. And and what have you noticed? Um, any difference in like tr like any new trends or expectations as far as um, the inquiries or the interest that you're getting on those sites? Um, like for example, I feel like you know we represent a, a larger um, warehousing distribution asset, and a lot of the leads we're getting are like massive chunks, like sixty thousand square feet plus, but they want it tomorrow. Are you seeing that in your world or? Um, yeah, we're, we're, we're continuing to see at this point in time uh, in the markets that we're in, and there are markets that um, this is not happening quite at the same pace, but demand is continuing to outstrip supply, um, really in kind of all size categories, from relatively shallow base space that's you know 40 to 70,000 square feet, and then 70,000 square feet to kind of 200, then you move into kind of the bigger tenants. Um, I, did read a, I did read a report from one of the bigger houses today where um, they did indicate that they're seeing demand wane in several markets. In those different size categories or? Demand in general. Demand in general. Um, now, I, I don't, I'm not all that worried. Uh, right. The vacancy is going to shoot through the roof because uh, with the increase in interest rates that you know, began last year at about this time or a little before this time, um, there's going to be somewhat of a pause. Construction starts began kind of a third or fourth quarter last year on the speculative side. Um, while there's a lot under construction and delivering right now, um, I think that there's going to be uh, a sharp decline in deliveries for kind of the back half of next year. How many spec products do you have under construction right now? Under construction right now, um, we've got five projects that are currently speculative under Where construction. Where are they? Um, Denver, Phoenix, Savannah. Greenville, Spartanburg, and almost here. Almost here. Right. When you say almost here, is that almost that it's almost started or almost? Almost that we're supposed to close on the land by the end of that. Okay. All right. Okay. And so that's size range, like half a million square feet? Uh, we have projects as small as 220,000 square feet up to a million. Okay. 
Uh, that's market dictated. Yeah. yeah. There's box markets. There's big box markets. Sure. There's bomber markets, and there's smaller shallow shallower mm-hmm. bay markets. Sure. Um, and talk to us about the build to suit process because that's obviously different than spec, but most of our listeners might not know the difference. So, build to suit. What's that mean to you, or how would you explain it to the layperson? So, our build to suit process is 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 really just an extension of. Um, what a good tenant representation uh, or corporate services client manager process. It's just, it's just where, they, where their process begins to slow down, our process begins to pick up. Okay. Um, effectively, we'll have a lease signed at land closing, and we're building a building to a tenant specifications. Exactly that's the how they want it, to, right? That's the simplest way to boil it down. Um, but we'll also assist in feasibility, site selection, all of the front-end things that clients need to help make smarter real estate decisions and to help brokers help their clients. Sure. Um, there's a skill set that we don't have on the site selection side of casting a wide net. Um, and then there's a skill set where that a lot of brokerage companies don't have where you can really begin to budget things. You can really begin to give kind of real-time capital markets input. This is what I think your rent is going to look like. Um, and... Uh, you know, we work an awful lot with our with our broker partners um, to solve things on the front end, and I would tell you that most of those projects don't come to fruition. We're fighting for the one or two out of twenty that do. Sure. And on the front end, you know, how in twenty twenty three in six well in eleven projects that are build to suit, how transparent is the process with the end user? Like, is it a math formula that they see, or is it um, Suncaps just saying, "Here's what your rent's going to be." Sure. So some clients are really only rent driven, right? Right. I would say that those are the clients that are doing one build a suit in ten years, one build a suit in twenty years. They're really facility focused, and they're really focused on that rental number. Okay. Other clients want to see everything. They want to understand who the subcontractors are going to be, and um, I would say that most of our clients lean that way so they see everything so they see the whole formula they see the build yield they see the costs um we'll have cost reviews um they'll understand exactly where the project is from a budget standpoint and a schedule standpoint as often as they would like to and they absorb the because obviously we've seen inflation go through the roof construction prices etc so from the time you have a site selected to the time you put a shovel in the ground who's absorbing the construction inflation risk the tenant or the, you, the developer? Well, that's a good question. So um, in most cases, we're guaranteeing pricing. I shouldn't say that. In all cases, we're guaranteeing pricing. At so we're, some point. At, we're, 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 guarantee, we're guaranteeing pricing. We're guaranteeing a rental rate. Okay. Um, the, the, the little bit of gray there is we will have uh, the open conversation with the tenant. Look, we believe that there could potentially be some pricing escalation risk in these items, and we are allowing for that. Okay. Um, and we will either carry a separate outside of the rental rate um, contingency on that contingency, or, or we'll and, and look, you can carry all kinds of different contingencies, tenant change order contingencies. Because believe it or not, through a twelve month construction process, every once in a while, a tenant changes their <laughs> mind. It's exactly what they want, which is fine. Um, but we'd rather account for that up front um, than try to amend leases, seek additional approvals. Um, and work our way back through a corporate process that may not line up from a timing standpoint with your construction and delivery process. Yeah. And then throughout the last couple of years with the volatility, um, you know, the 
the logistics or supply chain issues and the scarcity of some of the materials. Has Suncap done anything as a large-scale developer to help um, offset that risk? Yeah, again, so the way to offset risk in environments like we were in, uh, maybe we're not quite in it anymore, by the way. There are still certain items. We can talk about that uh, kind of the next line of questioning. There's still a little number two. Right? <laughs> um, but um, the, the way to shake risk out of that is through communication with the tenant. And that communication may be, hey, look, um, we need you to just sign an agreement of reimbursement, not just for you know design and things like that, but we've got to go ahead and make a deposit on this particular construction element right now to make sure that we can hit your date. Um, so that's the way you shake those risks out. But at that point, the tenant's then sharing in the risk with you. Sure. Um, and what are you seeing in terms of how far is a tenant willing to go in that um, that risk early on? You know, like, it, 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 it depends on the are tenant. Are they taking on seven figures of risk? Um, there are certain tenants that are willing to take on a lot of risk with you to make sure that their project's delivered on time. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I, it depends on the tenant. It depends on um, what the ultimate goal is for the facility. If they're solving for kind of a, a, a program or network-wide need that, that they really have to have, um, we've seen tenants willing to uh, commit to significant dollars. Um, in most cases, it's still primarily design, entitlement, while they're working through some kind of next level of corporate approval. Right. So uh, some of these guarantees, if I'm understanding correctly, like we need to order this project now so that we can deliver on time, happening before the lease is executed? Yeah, so we, we actually, um, through the negotiation of a letter of intent, uh, oftentimes a, an agreement of reimbursement will be attached to it. Um, because build the suits are tenant specific. It's not like I'm building a speculative building and I can lease it to anybody. A lot of these buildings are pretty sophisticated, have very specific improvements that are associated with them, and they're not market conforming. Mm -hmm. Does that ever impact, um, and maybe this is a better question for the tenant side of the equation, <laughs> but does that um, impact the leverage, like, you know, with remaining things that are outstanding in the back and forth of negotiating out the lease? I mean, if you know they've already committed to reimburse for certain uh, materials or pieces of equipment or XYZ, certain point they're kind of pop committed <laughs> before being signed on the dotted line. Well, right? Yes and no. There is a speculation that they would probably have, we, we're going to have X amount at risk, but they can still pull out if they wanted. Yeah. And look, just because they're, um, just because they're signing up, to reimburse us for certain costs and expenses. Yeah. They're just sunk costs and expenses to yeah. us. Mm -hmm. There's no money for us to be made until the lease is actually signed and we mm -hmm. deliver the building, right? Yeah. So I think it's pretty neutral. It's pretty even. Yeah. That's actually a really good question. And a magnifier. The look in Michael's eyes, I thought I was about to really get it. No, I was going to say <laughs> no, the magnifier no, no. on that the developer isn't making money on that stuff. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like, like the developer so is transferring risk and the tenant you know, obviously, the tenant the tenant would prefer to transfer the risk to the developer. That's the whole reason why they they do the build to suit in the first place. Right. So it's just who's who's really absorbing this, and that I think that kind of builds on the partnership when you're going through that process. You know, and you've been with SunCap now for ten years. 
Not quite. Um, since 2016. Okay. So um, in those seven years, how different has the build-to-suit world gotten in sense of sophistication? I mean, I've got an opinion and a perspective, but I'm curious. You've lived it. And, you know, fast forward to today, you've got these 11 projects compared to what 11 projects would have looked like in a sophistication perspective back then. You know, it's interesting. Um, overall, right, there are certain clients and certain groups that uh, are executing build the suits uh, very, very regularly mm-hmm. with, the, with, with, you know, just um, they understand kind of every market. There's certain tenants out there that have as much purview into the goings-on in a, in a build-a-suit as really maybe any developer does. Um, and there's a lot of tenants that still need a ton of help. They need somebody to really work with them through the process. And these, these aren't just you know mom-and-pop type tenants. These are tenants that just aren't used to going into space that was built for them. Um, there's, more, there's a higher degree of sophistication right now than there was uh, maybe six or seven years ago. Mm-hmm. At the same time, it's not it's not this huge kind of dramatic swing. Okay. Tenants and users of real estate still need real estate people to go ahead and execute projects. Right. It's not the best use of their time. And we look at what we look at what a lot of our tenants make, right? And kind of, um, you know, their profit margins. Yeah, I was gonna say on a margin inter- basis. Yeah, on a margin basis. Then we yeah, look yeah. at then we look at what we make, and uh, maybe we're in the wrong business, right? <laughs> I always, I mean, that's a fascinating thing. We've talked about it on one of the previous podcasts, like the decision to own or lease. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I remember very early in my career, I had some mentors or associates who were like, you know, the cost of the mortgage is X, so they should just buy the building. But the reality is, as you just pointed out, like these businesses are doing 20, 30, 40% margin. Mm-hmm. Why in the heck would they sink it into real estate and make single digit margins? It, yeah. Yeah, I, I, um, so, and, and look, and, and we're certainly not opposed as a, as, as a company to build a suit, something to own for somebody. We go through that kind of process and that exercise. You, you spend all this time negotiating a lease with all these clauses, you know, right, right. first offer, right, a first refusal, option to purchase. I, I, nobody ever does it. Nobody right? ever does no, it. No, nobody ever does it. Um, uh, but we're happy to go through the exercise in the event the stars line up and somebody decides that that's exactly what they want. What were you going to say? No, no, just oh. to – he hit on that right there. It's they, – they bake everything into the cake, and the reality is they just don't want to have the real estate on their books. They want somebody else to take that risk because their money's better spent someplace else. The yield is so much higher. Sure. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I don't know where we are on time. Time's staying Do you think that – Oh, now The – the, the clients that are very sophisticated and very used to build the suits, is it simply because they understand it better or they have a very difficult time finding the product that works for them perfectly in the markets that they expand to? Well, I think it's two things. I think that um, I think that they may have difficulty finding it in the markets that they want to expand to. The other part of it is they are generally building uh, a building that is ultra specific to their needs, so they're not going to find it in a speculative building. Mm-hmm. And what are the things that make it ultra specific? Because the common, you know, person would drive by building A, building B, and building C, and be like, "Whatever, it's the same exact building." Yeah, they all look like big concrete. They rectangles, just look right? like big concrete yeah, rectangles. Sure. So you know, everybody has um, from a from a specificity standpoint. 
everybody has different uh, mezzanines. Everybody's got different requirements for their material handling equipment. Um, or in some cases, they have a need because they're a distributor of extremely heavy things for cranes and they need different floor loads. Um, so uh, whenever somebody says, uh, whenever somebody makes a decision that I can't fit into a speculative building, Tenants are pretty good about sorting out the reasons why. Oh, absolutely. And they're, and they're right. Okay. Um, most speculative buildings are kind of 32, 36, 40 feet on the ceiling height. Um, we're building buildings higher than that. We're building buildings lower than that that don't really fit into that um, kind of vanilla, yeah. vanilla spec box. Okay. Yeah, and I don't know when the, the, the change was made when... You know, at one point in time, 24 foot clear and probably 250,000 feet, that was considered to be a large building. But then they went into these buildings that just got that much larger, and then cube height got that much larger. And so that, that everything changed. They realized that we work differently. And then the equipment that goes into them and the material handling components of it, it's, it's all over the place. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's interesting. Um, it's interesting when you're going ahead and, and, and you're executing a build a suit for somebody that, and, and they need to put their own things in there. Right? Yeah. We've got people entering buildings um, six months before construction is scheduled to be complete yeah. because they have to begin to put the infrastructure in for Which certain things wild, that right? they may need specifically. Um, and it is, it's, it's, but again, that goes back to it. It is a constant and ongoing relationship. You and I touched on it a little bit before uh, we, we started here. Um, between developer and tenant, there's always something. Um, and being able to communicate exactly where you are in the process uh, and make sure you're lining it up with that person on the ground or that vendor on the ground that's going to be tenant-specific that you don't really have control over to make sure that he's taken care of as well so that your tenant doesn't just get to occupy the building right. or have a certificate of occupancy for the building. Boom, it can go into production. It can be part of their system. It can be a useful asset to them. And then... So as you had mentioned earlier about um, kind of like the cyclical nature of this, and you think, you know, less, um, less projects are being, will be start to come into production, um, does that inform in any way um, your hold strategy once the, the, these assets are built and fully leased? I mean, what percentage historically do you keep and now are you holding on to more of those as an owner rather than selling them off to I would presume create you know liquid capital to start new projects yeah it's it's interesting as we've um, as we've moved through the process of growing as a as a development company um, we really look at hold versus not hold asset to asset how much do we like it? How much do we like the credit? Where is it? Um, how large was it? Because you're right. At times, you need to you need to recycle equity. Right. Um, so all of those things are made on a case by case basis. I would tell you there was a period of time where cap rates were just you know you're starting here with a cap rate on a building that you were building and, and they were continuing to kind of fall and it it, it didn't make a whole lot of sense uh, to hold on. Um, there have also been assets where we've said back. Ah, we like this. We want to keep it. It's in the right place. It's the right size. It's Just the right size. warm fuzzies. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, and is it science or is it warm and fuzzies? Like, I'm a, that's a serious question. 
Because um, I'd love to tell you it was just scientific. Right? It's warm and fuzzy. I'd love to tell you it was just scientific. Does industrial but developers have feelings you, too? You know, um, <laughs> I'd love to tell you it was, it was 100% scientific, and these are the metrics, and this is how we decide, and we stick to the plan every time. That's right. just not really the case. Right. That is funny. So learn something new every day. I'm assuming that it's also not scientific that the decision gets made to do something speculative, right? So you are chasing, I don't know how many different clients you have, but you know, say there's 20 of them. You're clearly always trying to make sure you get their next build to suit. Like it's part of the game, right? Sure. Um, and there's very few people in the country who are doing what you're doing at the scale that you're doing it. But then um, in the boardroom, somebody says, I think a spec building could be good here. And why? Like, is that scientific or is that also just a warm and fuzzy, hey, we were in this market, we noticed that there was something missing, so we're going to throw it up and see what happens? No, I would say there, there's there's too much risk because even, even a small speculative development. Um, What's a quarter of a million square foot spec building cost? 25, 30 million bucks. There you go. So um, you're dependent on the market, land prices, and where you are. Yeah, so you're like at 100, 115 bucks a foot. Yeah, big bets. Um, And uh, I would say that that it is much more scientific. Um, There's probably 12 to 18 months of kind of market underwriting that will go into any given market before we really feel comfortable tying up a land site and uh, moving forward with a speculative project there. Understanding historical absorption, understanding historical vacancy, some of it does come down to how well do you know the market. And is somebody on Suncap's team solely dedicated to being the scientist on that stuff? Each of the business development guys in their given markets will lead that effort. Okay. Um, we do have great support. When you spec buildings, you've been in that market for a while, though. Is that correct? I would or do you ever go in there blind? Yeah, so um, right now, all of our home markets that I listed yeah. earlier are our speculative you markets. Spec markets yeah. um, we do have speculative markets outside of those home markets. Um, but really, from a speculative standpoint, I think we're in we're, we're in eight or nine places right now. Okay, but even from a spec basis, though, you've been there for a while looking at what. The even if we don't is. have an office in there, it's yeah, a market that yeah. we're familiar it's, with. It's some that you follow, or 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 the or the uh, the team leader uh, has intimate knowledge of because he's worked there for a long time and he's delivered a lot of projects there. So, you know, spec is a is a place where um, we try to be careful and we try to pick our places. And if I heard you correctly, you've got the potential of doing something speculative here in our backyard. So I'm not going to ask any questions about where or what, but the why. Like, what about Pittsburgh um, or Western Pennsylvania has said, yeah, this is a place where we want to do something speculative. Like, what are you seeing that gets you excited about the region? So here's here's historically been, been a story in Pittsburgh, right? We never got to a place from an absorption standpoint that most markets, even the same size, did. Um, Meaning like, we were way behind. We were way behind. Yeah. Um, you know, our, Pittsburgh had, had historically absorbed, you know, if you go back, right, kind of to 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19 million square feet a year or so in new space. Um, and when you look at the space that's currently out there, the space that's currently underdeveloped, it kind of delivered that much too. You know, the market was pretty balanced. Mm-hmm. You had a couple of big build suits with, you know, um, the huge expansion of e-commerce kind of nationwide. You had a couple of big build suits in there. Um, but we think that Pittsburgh will continue uh, along a predictable, albeit relatively modest, growth path. 
Um, I also think that the space in Pittsburgh, uh, from kind of an inventory stock standpoint, it's old. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of functionally obsolete space in Pittsburgh, and there's a lot of functionally obsolete space that gets a pretty good rent. Right. Um, so uh, I'm excited about the project. I think that if you look around at some of the other larger speculative developments that have happened, um, there have been some that maybe have had some hiccups. There have also been some that I view as being pretty successful projects, and um, we've had competition out there that's done a really nice job with certain certain ones. Yeah, and is the um, market telling you that, like, how far out do you think that that can go in Pittsburgh? Because clearly we've got topography issues, we've got river and water issues, we've got soil issues. So uh, from a layman's perspective, it seems that if it's going to be speculative and it's going to be of any scale, it's going to be relatively far away. Yeah, I don't know that that's necessarily true. Um, but but because here's here's what here's what we're running into on a consistent basis around the country. Users are very very focused on workforce. Okay. And if you can't get to a place where you have access to a stable workforce, um, I think it makes some industrial development difficult. So a lot of the places that are further out where you can actually buy the land at a price point that, you that makes, sense, that, right? makes sense to move whatever, <laughs> right. you know, uh, half a million cubic yards for, for, for a 250,000 square foot building feels about right. Um, you know, uh, there's, a, there's a balance there. So finding those infill sites that can serve the population base and uh, attract a good workforce is really what, really what we're looking for. And um, on a speculative basis in Pittsburgh today, where do rents need to be? Well, in order to justify I, the project, yeah, I think it. I think it depends who you ask. It, it looks to me like rents um, for for Class A product have trended to kind of the mid sevens right now, um, and I would tell you that that's you know that's if if you couldn't make it work at market rents, you wouldn't go ahead and build spec. Um, I do see some outliers there where rents have gone up. Um, we did have a fair amount of year-over-year rental increase here from 2020 to 2021 and 2021 to 2022. I expect, like most places around the country, that that may level a bit this year, but mm-hmm. I'm still seeing it's probably a positive. It's po- probably a positive move up. Yeah, but uh, you know, compare that to some of the other markets you're in. I mean, we do work all over the country, and we've seen some wild rental rate year-over-year increases. Uh, we just got off a phone call today with a client who signed a lease in 2020, and I could tell that they think that that lease has no risk to them. Right. I haven't read it yet, but I have a strong suspicion that they've got real rental rate risk. Uh, This is in a Southern Florida market where, uh, again, I haven't read the document yet, but my gut tells me they're gonna be looking at like 100% rental rate risk, and it's only been 36 months since they signed the lease. Yeah, there's, there's a number of markets around the country that we saw have double-digit or 20% or greater rental increase for a period of two or three years. Which gets um, you to 60 to 100% increase that's right. in 36 that's right. months. Yeah. And, you know, we all we all looked at each other and, and were wondering, okay, you know, how much cost can the tenant can continue to absorb here? Um, because construction costs went, you know, kind of wild. Right. So your underwriting parameters changed dramatically on the cost side. It's like, are rents keeping up? In a lot of cases, you're like, yeah, you know, it feels like it is. Um, so it's a challenge right now for tenants that uh, are renewing. Um, and I only see the higher interest rate environment kind of continuing to put landlords in a position where 
uh, they're going to be unwilling to, uh, to retrench on rents. Yeah. I don't think it's going to be a tenant's market for a while. Yeah, it's interesting. So a lot of our work is in the PE space, and there's this perception that we're buying a business that's got a lease in place, we don't have any risk. And we're like, there's so much risk that's yeah. hidden that um, we always joke like the appraisal would never find it, the accountant yeah. would never find it, but there is real like macro-level economic risk that's happening around you that you would never see by reading someone's lease yeah, unless you were looking at the right. market around them. I think um, that's right. Construction costs. So are they crazy high still? Do you see them coming down? I'm a believer that once you could sell a light socket for two bucks, you're never going to sell it for a buck again. That's just my perception. What are you guys seeing? We've actually seen, um, we've seen a little bit of retreat in certain uh in certain materials, certain building components, we've seen things come back a little bit. Um, like a couple percent or like meaningful? No, steel's, steel has come down meaningfully. Okay. Um, and we've seen roofing retrench a little bit as well. Come uh, down meaningfully from its high water mark or come down meaning, meaningfully to where it was prior to that? No, we're never, I don't think we're ever okay, going back. So, so, it's, so it's, it's gone up, but now... It's giving you that feeling that it's oh it's a little bit better, but it's still higher than that's right. we were modeling before. That's right. Yeah. Um, well, all the models at this point have adjusted. Yeah. Right. Yep. So you what we are we are actually back to getting pricing from contractors and saying, oh, okay, okay, this is actually a little better than we expected. <laughs> uh, where for a long time it was you know you're you're you're, you're watching those bids come in and you're like oh I can't believe this oh I can't believe this we're not doing the project right. Right. Yeah. Um, it's it's changed it's changed from that point and uh, you know the more important part um, for us because again costs are costs you communicate sure. what costs are uh-huh. mm-hmm. uh, scheduling has become more reliable oh okay which right? is fantastic you know, um, and, and and because everybody understands because everybody understands what the challenges were it's easier to communicate look yeah switch gear is still this far out. Um, and here's the temporary solution for it. It costs this much more. We have to wait this long. Mm-hmm. If you can give somebody a, here are the options. Then instead the of, oh, this isn't going to work. You know, it's a right. big problem. You're solving the problem for them. So getting contractors to actually bid on jobs that can actually deliver in reasonable time frames, has that come back to some kind of normalcy or not? Yeah, I think it. I think it. it's on its way there. It's not there yet, though. Um, it's... it's it's close. Michael just wants you to paint him an ugly picture. No, it's I close. don't. I don't. No, I, I do. I, I, I just I want to get really depressed before I go up to Montreal no, next no, week no, for the no, SIOR no. conference. Because that'll be all roses no, and this sunshine is, this and is unicorns. Real time. This is real time, and it got haywire. It, it got really out of hand. That First of all, you couldn't say when something was going to deliver, but you really have to account for, if I go into the dirt at this particular time, I expect to deliver this product at this particular time. And that's what your tenants want. That's what you want. That's right. Certainly, that's what the lenders want. That's right. It's important yeah. to hit dates. Yeah. Um, it's back to being predictable at this point. Which that's is, great. Which is really positive. Yeah. It's really good to hear. Mm-hmm. So, as we wrap, unless you had another question. I was going to say we got two more things to cover, but go for it. Go for it. No, yeah. go ahead. I'm just trying to obey the... The yeah, we've got like we tried to set five minutes. Got somebody said. in the background giving us the <laughs> the hook. Um, so, I since you probably haven't watched a lot of the episodes, we are going to put you on the spot about your trade secret. 
But before we get to that, we got to pass this back to Michael because we do need to talk about the bourbon. Okay. So sweet, wait, wait, oh, it's, it's, it's the trade secret. That. Yeah, just a little. Yeah. I'm an open book. That's great. Okay, so Michael, do your thing. Okay, um, this is. Oh, he needs to put his glasses on. I gotta on. put my glasses on. Read this. Okay, so this is a Tennessee whiskey from the Great Smoky Mountains, Junction Thirty Five. Um, I liked it. I loved it. I like it a lot. I thought I feel it was like very usually good. You went to this um, distillery. I did go to this distillery. We were down in Pigeon Forge for the Easter uh, vacation with the family, and I had to sneak away with two of the four kids and try some bourbon. <laughs> yeah, they know how dad rolls. And uh, we got some food, and we tried this, and I loved it. Yes, I thought yeah, it was very nice. Yeah, I actually think it's very good. And it goes to show you that a bourbon doesn't need to cost thousands of dollars or hundreds of dollars. It was a $30 bottle of bourbon. Yeah. Um, what did you think? I thought it was great. Yeah. Matt, are you a bourbon drinker? I am not. <laughs> I am not. Well, <laughs> we could point you in the right direction if you just thought that <laughs> that was great. If I decide. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, so it's a winner for me. Um, all right, your trade secret. Trade secret. Wow. The Matt Virgin's trade secret, not the Suncap trade secret. Um, so this is this this is going to sound very generic and maybe even a little bit trite, but um, my trade secret is that make sure that you are treating everybody on your team. Uh, the way that you would have wanted to be treated whenever you were in that position. Or, if that team member happens to be above you, how you would like to be treated when you are in that person's position. That, that is fantastic. I don't think that that's trite or no. generic. Um, that is, yeah. Yeah, that's great. That's You're really also talking good. to a, a boss that is willing to bring someone in to give us chair massages <laughs> once a month. <laughs> so I Whatever think, it takes. I think you're speaking our language here. <laughs> um, yeah, and the only question I was going to ask, it's, it was just kind of a wrap-up similar to the trade secrets, was what's like the, if you had to pick a project in your career that was it stands out for like something that was just wild or super interesting or crazy circumstances, is there, do you have any cool like, War stories, but could be good, could be. Yeah, look. So um, this isn't this isn't a specific example. The groups uh, that we work with on a national basis that are highly sophisticated are great. We're actually part of their team. We're part of their delivery team, and that's incredibly rewarding. Mm -hmm. um, but there's nothing like working with a group who's not sophisticated, is super scared of the project, and hasn't done it before. Um, and that particular internal team at that company can look back at it and be proud of it um, because it's their building. Even though we might own it, it's their project. They feel ownership of it, and you really help them through the process. Um, it's great to work with folks that know that we're doing, and sometimes those particular groups can bring a whole myriad of challenges because your teacher, as well as kind of you know executing the project. Right. But at the end, when they're satisfied, that's a cool project. I think that that is... Exactly why. So we we had lunch yesterday with someone who we're really interested in bringing onto the team, and um, his whole career has been working with the big boys, the Fortune 100s, the Fortune 500s, etc. And I wish I could have delivered what you just said when he asked me, why do you focus on the privately held business? 
and a hundred percent it's because of the reward associated with the understanding that it was impactful versus it was just another thing in the day of uh, yeah yeah he's got 10 of them going on around the <laughs> right. country exactly right. truly providing a service i do have one question all right and this is a wrap okay this is a wrap so it better I, be I always, good I, no it's not it's not it's, it's not actually be just good. my own personal reputation <laughs> but uh do you have a favorite market that you work in now what is what is the market that you like doing listen michael i'm a pittsburgh guy you're a Pittsburgh guy. I'm a Pittsburgh guy. This is my market. It's my favorite market to work in. This is your favorite market? Yep. Without a doubt. That well, is a great, or great way to wrap. That is a great way to wrap. Yeah. Well, sir, All thanks right. so much. Thank Cheers. Thank you for coming. Cheers. That was really we fun. really appreciate it. Thanks for having again. me. Cheers. Cheers. Did we do the first cheers also on camera? Mm -hmm. We did. Gosh, that's awkward. Okay. It wasn't on camera. <laughs> that's a wrap. Episode 22 with Matt Virgin from Suncap. Uh, we look forward to the next one, and thanks again for joining us. Thanks, man. All right, appreciate it. Appreciate it.